Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The founders of the United States envisioned the Supreme Court as the weakest of the three branches of government. But even a president who serves as little as one term can nominate Supreme Court justices who, if confirmed by the Senate, can sit on the bench for life. The presidential impact on public policy can extend well beyond their tenure in office. Despite the founders' intentions, many scholars now believe that the Supreme Court is the most powerful branch of government. Next on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Moore's alumni distinguished professor of political science Timothy Johnson, a nationally recognized Supreme Court expert, shares his insights on how the court functions and why its influence has grown over the decades. Professor Johnson is a featured speaker at the U of M Headliners Series event on October 10th. We'll have more information on that later in the show. Professor Johnson joins us by phone. Thanks for having me, Jim. Always good to be here. How did the Founding Fathers envision the Supreme Court, and was the first court similar or drastically different from the court we have today? You know, that's a wonderful question and one that I will address in my talk uh, at the Headliners presentation The framers did, in fact, envision a court that may not necessarily have been as strong as it is today. There's the famous phrase from Alexander Hamilton that the court might be the least dangerous branch because it has neither the power of the purse nor the sword. But that said, from very early on, under John Marshall, the fourth chief justice of the United States, and in particular after his court decided Marbury versus Madison, giving itself the power of judicial review, The court became quite powerful almost immediately after that point. Um, And so you do end up with a court, even though it worked maybe slightly differently then than it does today, that acted in a very similar way. Is the Supreme Court a more powerful branch of government today than it was in its earliest years? So I would say that even though it, it did grab some power quite quickly, the court was not as powerful early on. In fact, in its first 10 terms prior to the Marshall Court beginning um, in the early 1800s, the court only decided 50 cases. And in fact, in its first 18 months of existence, it decided zero cases. And so that inherently was going to limit its power just to the extent that it wasn't deciding anything. Once Marbury was decided, the Marshall Court really did hand down some pretty highly powerful decisions, but I would still say that today the court is probably more powerful just in that it decides many more cases um, and it decides many more salient cases that affect policy and law of the entire nation to a greater extent than it did early on. Do you think the founders would be surprised at how powerful the court has become? I don't think that they would ultimately be surprised at its power because they did envision, despite the Hamilton quote, the framers did envision that we really did need this undemocratic, if you will, unelected branch of government to quell the idea of a possible tyranny of the majority that could coalesce between the executive and the legislative branches of the federal government. So I'm not sure that they would necessarily be surprised. I think they might be surprised to the extent that partisanship and politicization have taken a role in the court. I think the framers very much believed that the court would stay above politics, which it does a pretty good job of most of the time, but it is getting itself into deciding on issues that maybe the framers wouldn't have thought of. Supreme Court justices have no term limits. What reasoning did the founders give for this? The ultimate reasoning, if you look back at a good deal of readings 
or writings, I guess that would be, of the founders, is that, in fact, you want to make sure that you've got a group of judges who are not beholden to any particular constituency, and so they don't need to seek re-election, therefore they don't need to raise money, and they are beholden to one thing, and that is getting the law right, and therefore having life terms made sense to the framers. Would you say that the justices who have served the longest tenure on the court have had also the most significant impact on the court? Not always, but it's very clear that some of the longest serving had great impact, right? So Chief Justice Marshall in his almost 35 years clearly had probably the biggest impact on the court and on the decisions that it makes, if for no other reason than for him setting down the standard of judicial review. But then you've had some other greats, William Douglas, who was a big champion of civil liberties and civil rights, who is the longest serving justice in the court's history. And then, of course, more recently with the death of John Paul Stevens, despite him being a right-leaning moderate uh, on the bench, he ends up having a really powerful impact on the court in his almost 36 years on the bench, just because he really did control majorities um, in a way that more extreme justices may not have been able to do so. And by more extreme, I mean more extreme ideologically. To what extent is age a consideration when presidents select a court nominee? Do they try to pick someone who conceivably has a long career ahead? Oh, certainly. Age is always consideration for presidents. Remember, presidents can only serve a maximum of eight years. And so any president will tell you that his, and hopefully at one point soon her decision, is to put someone on the bench who will carry on or hopefully carry on a legacy for many more years, perhaps decades, longer than those eight years. And so, yes, presidents do look at age very clearly. And you can see that in the last four nominations of Justices Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Sotomayor, and Kagan, who were all in their late 40s or early 50s and might ultimately end up serving until their mid-80s or even into their early 90s, as John Stevens did. That leaves a very large legacy, and they can therefore have a pretty good impact on decisions the court makes for such a long period. Chief Justice John Roberts has insisted that the Supreme Court is not politicized. The public, however, sees the court as being frequently divided along pretty clear ideological and political lines. Why is the public's perception different from how Chief Justice Roberts views the court? Yeah, I think the public's perception is different than any of the justices, including Chief Justice Roberts, because what the public sees in the media are those 5-4 splits on cases like campaign finance and abortion and and very difficult freedom of speech cases and death penalty cases. What they don't see is that you still have a large and sometimes majority percentage of cases that are decided unanimously or by eight one decision, that, those cases that we would call easy cases under the law. So the public gets a different perception because there is if you will, a bias in the media, not an ideological bias, but a bias towards reporting only on the most salient of cases. And so you get a skewed view of the court when you only hear about those difficult cases that it decides. We're talking with Timothy Johnson, a Moore's alumni distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court and some of the current issues surrounding the court. Is Chief Justice Roberts being somewhat naive about the politicalization of the court, and is the public right to be skeptical of the court's ideological impartiality? Well, I think time will tell. I mean, it's quite clear that the public 
probably needs to have some level of cynicism, just as the public did, but in a different manner during the Warren court, when, in fact, we had the same sort of ideological split, but the majority was a majority of more liberal-leaning justices and conservative-leaning justices that we currently have under Chief Justice Roberts' court. So to some extent, you could maybe argue that he is naive, but he really is a judicial pragmatist or a judicial conservative, if you will, and he will try to move the law only incrementally, if at all humanly possible for him. And it is going to be the chief whose shoulders it will come on uh, or lean on, if you will, to ensure that the court remains as much as possible above politics. How do you think the recent Senate hearings on Supreme Court nominees, or in the case of President Obama's nominee Merrick Garland, the lack of a Senate hearing, have shaped public perception of the process of appointing justices to the court? Oh, I think that this is the other place where the public truly believes the court has become highly political. Because the game, if you will, is played within the halls of Congress, and then therefore played out on television from Fox to CNN to Bloomberg, TV to MSNBC, the public sees that the wrangling and the fighting over nominees and the lack of ability of current presidents as well as current members of the Senate to compromise on candidates really does lead to a bitter taste in the mouth of the public over the confirmation process, if you will. Certainly, there were candidates earlier on nominees who were just as controversial as a Justice Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or Kagan or Sotomayor, but there was an implicit understanding that presidents really did have a say and that the Senate would only fail to confirm if there was really a difficult matter or thoughts of criminal activity or unethical activity. And you can see that in that there's only been one rejection in the past over 50 years, and that was of Judge Robert Bork. Throughout the history of the court, how has popular culture and popular opinion influenced the court? Do justices, especially ones who stay on the court for decades, sometimes undergo an ideological evolution? So I will say this. That's actually a two-part question. It is pretty clear in the political science data that the court does, in some sense, react to public opinion and doesn't, in my words that I use when I teach concept of my students, doesn't want to stray too far too often from public sentiment over particular issues. And that is because the court doesn't have any power to enforce its decisions. It really relies on its legitimacy and therefore the goodwill of the citizenry to follow its decisions. And if it does stray too far from the public, then it has an issue of maybe the public not listening to it. Now, the second part of that question, justices who sit in the court for a long period of time often do end up having some sort of ideological um, change, if you will. What political scientists call it is they, they succumb to what is known as ideological drift. Now, not all, right? So the longest-serving justice on the bench, again, William Orville Douglas, he simply got more and more liberal as he was on the bench over 35 years. On the other hand, you've got some long-serving justices. The two that I usually use in my classroom talks are Justice Harry Blackman, who was put on the court in the early 70s by President Nixon. Uh, That is a pretty conservative Republican. And over the course of his career on the bench, Blackman became quite a bit more liberal. That is, he drifted to the left. On the other hand, you've got Byron White, who was put on the court by President Kennedy in the early 1960s. And he ultimately, especially in the area of criminal rights, drifted to the right. So yes, we do see that drift. 
But for the most part, you see justices, while there's variation in how they decide ideologically, stay pretty true to the ideological predilections they had when they joined the bench. Who are the originalists on the current court, and how did that movement come about in the first place? The strongest originalist on the bench today is Justice Clarence Thomas, put on the court in 1991 by President G.H.W. Bush, that is Bush 41. And then we do have some pretty strict constructionists in Justice Alito, um, as well as the newest justices in Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. And these justices really, if you will, gained that sort of view, the we stick to a strict constructionist or originalist view of the Constitution, through the, the legal education they obtained, through their early years as judges on lower courts, and through this idea that, in fact, Chief Justice Roberts even believes in, and that is judicial conservatism. And I want to be clear, and you and I have talked about this before, Jim. Judicial conservatism is different than ideological conservatism. Judicial conservatism is a philosophy that says an originalist hold true to this, and that is you read the Constitution as the words are written, you read statutes as the words are written, you don't try to interpret them in any way, shape, or form, and you give deference to the Constitution, and statutorily you give deference to what Congress says about a particular law. And so it comes about as one of the tried-and-true judicial philosophies, and ultimately it usually does lead to more ideological decision-making, that is, right-leaning ideological decision-making, but the two are not necessarily fully correlated. America looks very different today from the America at the time of the Founding Fathers. It's less white, generally more inclusive of women, and increasingly of GLBTQ individuals. Also, more Americans now live in cities, and technology has brought smartphones and social media into our daily routines. How do the originalists interpret the Constitution in contemporary America? Right. So an originalist would say that freedom of speech is freedom of speech. And if there is this concept, which is laid out in the First Amendment, that Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of speech, they would simply say that, look, back in the early 1800s or late 1700s, just after the founding, freedom of speech was quite literally words that came out of your mouth or words that came off of your pen or off of your quill. Today, you don't need to say that just because you've got a smartphone or a bullhorn or some specific social media platform that that is any different than the quill or the pen or the spoken word from 200-odd years ago. They will say that a strict constructionist, it doesn't matter that the mechanism has changed. We still would protect that particular form of speech. So that's not difficult for a strict constructionist. He or she would simply say, yeah, we can still decide those cases and we can still hold true to the principles of the Constitution, even though times have changed. One situation comes to mind immediately, and this is one, of course, that's hypothetical. But if there were ever a case that would uh, call into question the Second Amendment's wording about uh, the right to bear arms... Some people might say, well, when the founders envisioned the Constitution and wrote the Constitution, they certainly did not foresee a time where a gun could fire more than one round at a time. How would a strict constructionist deal with a technological change like that where clearly the weapon has changed over the last 230-some years? Sure, that's a wonderful question. And in fact, you can find some analysis on this in Justice Scalia's majority opinion in Heller versus the District of Columbia. 
And he says, look, I tell you now, and, and he had a majority to agree with him, and so it becomes law, that there's an individual right to bear arms. But if you look very closely at it, he does leave some crumbs for those who are on the side that says there should be regulation of firearms. And he says, just because you have the right to bear arms does not mean that reasonable limits could be placed on the, the use of those weapons. So, for instance, even though he doesn't use this language, I'm sort of telling you what these breadcrumbs could lead to, and that is the breadcrumbs could lead to saying we're going to put limitation on bump stocks, which is a technology that, that the framers also wouldn't have thought about. We could put a limit on the types of bullets that you can put in guns and the amount of bullets you can put in guns. That is, we could limit high-capacity magazines. Now, those cases have not reached this U.S. Supreme Court yet, and it'll be interesting to see if the strict constructionists would buy that argument. But the strictest of all strict constructionists, Justice Scalia, left the door open for those sorts of limitations. So it's the same sort of argument that I would make about the free speech example I used a couple of minutes ago, and that is just because technology under the Second Amendment, that is, the types of guns we see in the world today may have changed, doesn't mean that the government may not be able to regulate, even though we still have that right to bear those arms if we would like. At what points in history would you say the court has been the most ideologically divided? So, you know, there are several, and I I believe you and I have talked about this in previous interviews as well. So you've got the court being highly ideologically divided during the New Deal era, um, when, in fact, you had the four horsemen of the apocalypse, along with Justice Owen Roberts, striking down New Deal legislation ad nauseum, really, until mid-1937, when you have this famous switch in time that saved nine, meaning that FDR no longer was going to go through this court-packing plan. You had a pretty decent ideological division during the Warren Court, and that would be the height of the Warren Court, where you had five or six liberals who were ultimately controlling the court in the mid to late 1960s. But you get then to really ideologically difficult courts, mid-Rehnquist court, that is the early to mid-1990s, after Justices Brennan and Marshall are replaced on the bench with Justices Souter and Thomas. And now you probably have what scholars will and historians will believe, and and it'll be borne out in the decades to come, probably the most ideologically divided court of the 21st century and perhaps of the last half of the 20th century. Two liberal justices, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan, have been critical of the conservative justices' decisions to overturn precedent in a couple of recent cases. Why is it a big deal for the court to overturn precedent, and what is the reasoning of the conservatives? The reason that the justices believe in precedent is that it really does lead to stability in the law. You do not want, on a regular basis, to have the court changing what the law says in the United States. It really does ultimately lead to people not knowing what the law says. Um, And that is a problem, because in order for the law to be legitimate, people need to know that it is stable and that it is lasting. And so you have this concept that goes throughout the entire history of the court of the justices believing that precedent is something very important for them to hold on to. Now, you have these recent overturns in precedent, and the argument that is made by the conservatives, and I think the reason you're asking that question is it was the conservative majority that was overturning these precedents, they will make the argument, as it was made by the Warren Court in Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, that there are times when precedents were simply wrong, when society has changed to the extent that those precedents need to go away, or there is some other 
a salient reason that we should no longer follow that particular case from decades or perhaps multiple decades ago. And so the argument that is being made today is simply one that says these were precedents, not that we just disagree with ideologically, they wouldn't say that out loud even if they believed it, but precedents that we believe that were simply decided in a way that did not comport with what the law or the Constitution suggests uh, the law should actually say, and so we needed to change things. We're talking with Timothy Johnson, a Moore's alumni distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court and some of the current issues surrounding the court. Do you think we will see more precedents overturned with this court? I think it's possible that you will see more precedents overturned. I think that the brakes will be put on by Chief Justice Roberts. I don't think you're going to see him act like a Justice O'Connor or a Justice Kennedy, where on a regular basis he will decide with the four members of the liberal bloc in the court. But I think if you start seeing radical changes, think, for instance, Roe versus Wade being overturned, I could see him saying, we're not going to go that far, and giving a vote to that liberal bloc, and I'm not saying that he would in the abortion case, I'm just using that as, as an example, but that he will probably pump the brakes or put the brakes on, maybe even more significantly um, in some cases, to make sure that precedents that we know should probably exist um, and stay good law are not overturned. And the best example I will give you is this. Chief Justice Rehnquist, when he got on the court as an associate justice in the early 1970s, very much wanted to overturn Miranda versus Arizona. And that's the case that says the police may not interrogate you until you have had your rights read to you. And we all know those rights from police shows that we watch on television on a daily and weekly basis. In fact, there is some evidence that he made it his mission to overturn Miranda. And he got that chance in the early 2000s in a case called Dickerson. He assigned the opinion to himself and realized that he couldn't overturn that precedent that he had hated for so long. And there are many reasons he chose not to have that precedent overturned, but the two most important reasons are, the first is he said that Miranda rights are so ingrained in our society now that, in fact, people would believe that the police are doing something significantly wrong if you are arrested and you're not read your rights. And so we all believe we should have those rights read to us. The second is that he believed that Miranda actually hurt police officers by not allowing them to interrogate suspected criminals or alleged criminals. It turns out that, in fact, Miranda protects police officers as much as it protects the criminally accused. And so he said, well, It turns out the data show we've got this protection, and on top of that, people believe this right. It is ingrained in our society. We can't overturn that precedent. And I suspect that the current Chief Justice, who was a former clerk of Chief Justice Rehnquist, may take that same tack in many cases. There are those who are quite concerned about the politicalization of the court. The fact that uh, with longer lifespans, the Senate can appoint a justice who could serve for many decades. And there have been some calls to make the court perhaps more egalitarian and perhaps impose term limits. Also, there's been suggestions that we could ensure that each president has a certain number of opportunities to nominate a uh, person for the Supreme Court. And again, going back to the uh, the court packing plan of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, there's also been some talk about perhaps increasing the size of the court, the number of justices. What do you think of these proposals? Uh, How would they change the court, and how likely are they to ever happen? 
Right. So let me take the last question first, and that is I don't think any of these reforms are very likely to happen. I don't think that the justices would like any of these reforms to happen. They don't have incentive to support them. And I also don't think that members of Congress actually have incentive to support them. As for the idea of term limits, well, you need a constitutional amendment to do so because, in fact, the Constitution in Article 3 says justices sit in times of good behavior, which ultimately means they sit for life tenure. Given how difficult it is to pass constitutional amendments and then have them ratified, I don't see that happening. Um, I also don't see any of the other reforms happening because of that constitutional amendment concept. Now, in terms of how these would change the court, of course they would change the court, and all of them would make the court slightly more political because you would have politics coming in on a semi-annual or every four years or every six years basis as presidents and senators turn over in their respective institutions. And so while this is an imperfect system, this is one place where I actually probably call myself a strict constructionist because I normally am not, and that is the best of all of the not-so-good scenarios or policies is to keep the policy and keep the Constitution as it is keep the justices as much as humanly possible about politics. And the way you do that, even though we know that they are getting more ideological and they're getting more politicized, if you will, is to keep them at this idea of lifetime tenure. Timothy Johnson is a Morris alumni, distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. He is the featured professor for the U's Learning Life Headliners series on October 10th. If you'd like more information on that, simply visit our website, at DialogueMinnesota.com. Professor Johnson, thanks again for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. Reality TV shows have grown in number and popularity over the past 20 years and are a major staple of television programming. On the next Dialogue Minnesota... A reality TV expert joins us to discuss this programming genre and how it may influence the way the Trump administration conducts White House business. Be sure to visit us at DialogueMinnesota.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. I'm Jim Dubois. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.